Verse 1 in Romans 13 says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinances, uh, the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. You want to have no fear of authority, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this... You also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. As you know, for many weeks now, we've been working our way through these, uh, this text, and uh, specifically, <coughs> excuse me, the first five verses of this chapter, and we're trying to consider the... Uh, what the text says, obviously, then consider the principles from the text to help us as believers understand our responsibility uh, to government. And, and tonight we're moving forward to verses 6 and 7, which have to do with the issue of paying taxes. Now, it probably goes without uh, saying, but nobody likes to pay taxes, and we pay taxes all the time. Every time you buy gasoline, you pay tax. Every time you purchase some kind of clothing item or something from the store, you pay tax. Every time you buy a car purchase property, purchase anything, you pay taxes. April 15th, you pay taxes. And nobody likes to pay taxes, but we pay taxes all the time. And we try to do whatever we can uh, legally to lessen our tax liability. And unfortunately, there's some people who try to do everything they can illegally to lessen their tax liability. All right. Uh, Will Rogers, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but an American humorist and political analyst once said, the income tax has made more liars out of American people than golf has. <clears throat> and, that, and that's probably a, a, a good observation, right? Nobody likes taxes. But what should our attitude towards taxes be as believers? And again, this is part of the subject that we've been looking at uh, for many weeks now. Again, as Christians, our relationship to government. And, and for many weeks, again, we've been working through these first five verses and trying to understand as believers what it looks like to live life in two kingdoms, because that's the reality for the Christian. We, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we still live among men, so we're citizens of the, the kingdom of men. We live here on the earth. So how do we live? How do we act? How do we react in, in this world being citizens of two kingdoms? And I think it's especially difficult for us, this issue of taxation, because we as Christians in this country have grown up in a country that fought for its independence over the issue of taxes, right? Uh, taxation without representation. So we as Americans come out of a, a background historically that is built on a rebellion uh, over the issue of taxation. So I think it's a great challenge for us to think biblically uh, on the issue, uh, especially as we see our government growing more and more wicked and more and more uh, unrighteous. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing our, our government punish those who do good, and uh, the righteous, and then reward those who do evil, which is completely backward to what uh, God has ordained government to achieve. And, and repeatedly, we're seeing government using our money for things that uh, we don't believe they should be using our money for. They're, they're using it for things that we would really stand in opposition to or have a biblical uh, principle, by way of biblical principles, uh, objection to. 
And also at the same time, we're seeing an ever-increasing grab for power uh, of uh, government everywhere over everything. Uh, civil government, civil governing authorities in this country and really around the world are really moving towards more total authority over all of society. There's a really, a really an ever-increasing totalitarian bent towards government uh, where the government or the state seeks to have absolute control over everything. And above every other sphere of authority, uh, the state wants to be recognized itself as the supreme authority overall. Uh, the state wants to be recognized as the ultimate God demanding everybody's complete appliance, uh, compliance and complete allegiance. So how do, we, how do we live as Christians and how do we, in, in this kind of environment, how do we respond to authorities over us? Now, in, in our studies together, uh, we've come to see that we have a responsibility to submit ourselves to governing authorities but because God has ordained all authority. Uh, again, verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. <clears throat> so God has ordained human government and, and this is his plan in, in a fallen world. He gives delegated power, delegated authority to men to rule over other men for the good of the whole. And, and as we've seen, this idea of subjection does not mean absolute total allegiance, absolute total obedience, uh, because absolute total obedience belongs to God and God alone. So subjection is more of a heart attitude, a willingness to line up under authority, a heart attitude of being in subjection to authority, acknowledging that God is sovereign over all human rulers. And that God in his sovereignty even uses wicked rulers for his own good purposes. But all authority comes from God. All authority is delegated authority. And all authority has biblical limits. We talk, uh, we've talked about that. You know, governing authorities don't have the right to command us to do what God forbids. Governing authorities do not have the right to forbid us from doing what God commands us to do. And, and government authorities don't, can't command what's not theirs to command. So there, there's these uh, limitations biblically on the role of government. And as we've seen, <coughs> excuse me, in our studies, again, there's spheres of authority. <coughs> there's an authority in the home, which the, uh, the ruler of that home basically belongs to the, the husband, the husband and the wife together. They submit themselves under the headship of God himself, under the authority of God. And then the children in that room or in that uh, setting in the home, the children submit themselves to the parents. And the state really has no legitimate God-given authority over matters of the home. Matters with the children. The, the children do not belong to the state, contrary to popular opinion in, in the society in which we live. Now, children belong to the parents, and the parents belong to them all authority in the home. So that sphere of authority really needs to be protected. There's also a sphere of authority uh, in, in the church, which God has given authority in, in that realm over to pastors, elders, teachers, uh, the shepherds of the congregation. To them, it's the responsibility <clears throat> to decide all aspects of the congregational life and all aspects of, uh, of spiritual matters. The state, again, has no legitimate authority over the spiritual matters of the church. Uh, somebody asked me a, a week or so ago, what about fire codes? What about zoning uh, restrictions? Uh, it, it is true that the, the church subjects themselves to those things, but those are just routine uh, aspects of civil life. Those aren't spiritual matters. Uh, spiritual matters belong to the spiritual leaders. And again, pastors, elders, the spiritual leaders of the congregation, spiritual leaders of the church, to allow the government to dictate any kind of aspects of the, of the fellowship related to the meeting and when we meet, how what we meet, what we teach, what's taught, how we pray, any other kind of issue regulated to worship, that's really outside the bounds of biblical authority that belongs to the, to the rulers of the, of the church, not to the rulers of the state. And sometimes, honestly, pastors, elders, shepherds just need to remind civil governing authorities to stay in their lane. 
And they just need to be told when they're outside their lane, if you will, right? And then, of course, there's another sphere of authority. You've got one in the home, one in the church, and you have one with, with government, human government, the state for the well-being of society. And basically, uh, biblically, human government or the role of human government in society, the state's responsibility is to restrain evil and promote good. Restrain evil, promote good. Make sure that the God and inalienable God-given rights that men have are protected. So, that, so that's the role of, of human government. There are limits uh, on human government and its authority. Again, the state has no legitimate right or authority to infringe upon the authority that belongs in the home, nor does the state have any legitimate right or authority to infringe upon the authority that belongs to the church. Each sphere of authority is distinct. Each sphere of, thwar- of, uh, of authority has its own uh, sovereignty and own autonomy. And again, God has charged human government with the job of protecting uh, inalienable rights, with the fundamental, protecting the fundamental uh, blessings that God has given to mankind, that being the right, remember we went to, and looked in the, in, the, in the book of Genesis, that being the right to f- the freedom of worship, uh, the right to enjoy the blessings of marriage and family, the right to eat. Uh, God has given all food for man, uh, and, and government must protect the food supply, and, and then the right to life. God has given these inalienable rights, and all government needs to do, or what government must do, is protect those inalienable rights. Again, human government does not grant these rights to us. They belong to us from God. They are God, uh, through God's ordained authority to mankind. So again, the main function of uh, the state is to protect our God-given inalienable rights. And again, the greatest gift that God has given of all these other rights, the right to worship, the right to family, the right to eat, is the right to live, the right to have life. And again, God has given life to men, and only he can take it away. Therefore, God has given government the, the command to protect these inalienable rights, and the greatest one being a right to life. And when men pass beyond the border that really belongs to them, the boundary that belongs again, exclusively to God, the issue of life, when another man comes and takes another man's, or when man comes and takes another man's life himself, therefore he's outside the bounds of what he is permitted to do. Therefore, that man who takes another man's life has to forfeit his own. Again, without pity, without partiality, without delaying. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Therefore, to government, God has given the right to bear the sword. Uh, it's to, uh, to be God's avenger against evil. And God has given to civil government the right to carry out the ultimate punishment upon the wicked, and that would be the right to take life, and again, in the form of capital punishment. Because that maintains and emphasizes the sanctity of, uh, of human life, that protects the innocent and punishes the evil. I also believe uh, that, that government in this category of the right to bear the sword, I, I, th- I think that also extends to the state's right to declare war, to wage war, to protect its citizens from wicked intruders from the outside or from the inside. Now we've also seen that uh, God in His uh, that God has ordained government in a fallen world. Uh, we have a responsibility to submit to authority, uh, but again, we're not called to blind obedience. Uh, we're called to obey God first. But we realize that uh, because we realize that any uh, uh, rebellion uh, uh, against authority, in essence, is really rebellion against God. With the caveat. Uh, uh, unless the authority goes outside its God-given roles and, again, asks us to do something that God forbids or commands us to do something that uh, God commands us to do. So those who rebel against authority <coughs> are going to be punished. Uh, look at verse 2. Therefore, 
He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister, verse 4, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. And then the last reason we saw that we really should submit ourselves to government uh, through authorities over us is it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for the sake of our conscience. Because, again, we understand the reason that, that, that government exists. Uh, um, uh, because God has put it for the, for the promotion of good and for the, for the uh, holding down of evil, for the punishment of evil. Uh, verse 5, under the category of for our conscience sake, war, uh, wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So a uh, uh, biblically informed conscience is bound to obey the clear command of God to subject ourselves subject yourself to, to authority. We all need to subject to authority because authority comes from God. Now, God has called us to obey him. And again, we obey him before we obey men. Therefore, if an authority should ask us to come and do something that God commands us not to do or calls us not to do or tells us to do something that God commands us to do, then we have a biblical responsibility to obey God first rather than men. But we've seen within that responsibility uh, the, to when we come to the issue where we think it's right to disobey God, then it always has to be done with a proper heart attitude. That's what we're really talking about here. <clears throat> we're talking about heart attitudes, right? It has to be done with a proper heart attitude that respects the authority, and if you're going to decline to obey, then it has to be done with a willingness to accept whatever punishment the human authority might deem necessary. Again, we talked about uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the fellows in the field, and everybody's going to bow down, and we're not bound down. Well, I'm going to put you in a fire. You do what you think is right. You know, King, we prefer that you not do that. But we're still not bound. Okay, we'll, we'll accept whatever punishment you want to render out. But, but it was always done, it was done in a respectful manner. And that's the, that's the hard attitude behind the whole thing. Because we're recognizing that God is sovereign and he's sovereign over all authority. So uh, I guess the bottom line in, in one sense is Christians should be the best citizens in the country. Right? Citizens should be the very best citizens in the kingdom of men, and we should exercise, we should exercise whatever civil liberties we have uh, been bestowed upon us in, in this setting, and we should, however, keep a balance that the reason why God has left us here in the world is not to reform society. Uh, he's really left us in the world to do what? Evangelize the lost, right? To seek and save the lost. That's why Christ came. He, he hasn't uh, called us to, here to transform the culture by trying to, trying to quote-unquote, Christianize it. He's really called us to one-on-one -on -one evangelism because we understand that for the culture to change, that change has to take, one, take place one person at a time. Ch change occurs one heart at a time, one soul at a time that comes to the knowledge of the truth that's set free from, from sin's bondage and submits themselves to the person of Jesus Christ. So again, I said last time, as we're seeing an ever-increasing government overreach, we're seeing the encroaching totalitarianism in our country and around the world the church just desperately needs to be what? The church. We just need to be the church. We are salt. We are light in this world. right? We just need to stand up for everything that is godly and righteous and holy. Uh, and we need to oppose all that is evil and wicked. And to remind governing rulers, human governing rulers, human authorities, that they too are to subject themselves 
to human authority, to, to God's authority. To remind human authorities, they too are to subject themselves to God's authority because the authority that they are exercising is a delegated authority that does not come from them, from within them. It comes from God. And they too are going to one day give an account to God for how they have used that delegated authority. Again, I just think simply at times uh, men need to be reminded of that. And then realize that uh, in, in a country or in the world for that matter, like the one we live in that is just full of immense problems and conflicts, from social to economic to personal to international to national to anger, abuse, murder, high crime rates, drug abuse, alcoholism, mental disorders, etc., and so forth, and ad nauseum, where it seems kind of like the entire fabric of society in our country and around the world is kind of falling apart, we need to understand this, that the issue is not political. It's not political. The issue is spiritual. All the problems in the world come from two sources. All the problems in the world come from two sources. Number one, sin, and number two, Satan. That's it. All the problems in the world basically stem from two things, sin and Satan. Think back just to the beginning of the book of Romans, first three chapters. Those first three chapters in the book of Romans tell us that we live in a world where man is hopelessly engulfed in sinfulness. And because of his sinfulness, he does the things that he does. Because he's fallen, he's depraved. So the very core of man's being is profoundly and deeply, fundamentally, fundamentally negatively affected by sin. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Sin's the problem. As we were coming to a conclusion last uh, week when we met, I reminded you that we need to understand the conflict that is out there as it's related to the state and the church. That conflict is, is inevitable. It's not going to go away. Because 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are of God, but the whole world what lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So again, all the problems in this world basically come down to two things. They're related to sin and Satan. And because mankind is a sinner, he finds himself in the domain, uh, dominion of Satan, or the domain of Satan. In, in that dominion, or in that domain, that kingdom, if you will, Satan does everything he can to do to try to excite the sinfulness of fallen men. So, so the problems in our world, they're not just human, they're really supernaturally intensified, uh, supernaturally spiritually intensified. As man is the product of his fallenness and the product of Satan's activities. Stop and think about uh, this. Think about the Lord's encounter with Satan as he was headed out to the wilderness, right? Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 8 of that chapter says, And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. I think it is highly significant that the Lord Jesus did not say to Satan, No, you do not have that kind of power. You don't have that ability. You don't have that authority. They don't belong to you. The Lord Jesus never said that. Again, ind indicating the fact that Satan does indeed possess that kind of power. He has that kind of power over the various kingdoms of the world. Again, 1 John 5.19, we know that what? We are of God and the whole 
world lies in the power of the evil one. All these kingdoms of the world and their glory I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Over in Luke chapter 4, Luke gives the account of that uh, temptation in the wilderness of Christ. He says this, Luke 4 verse 5, reading out of the ESV, he says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all be yours. To you I will give all this authority, again, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it up to you, to whom I will. So Satan is in charge of the kingdoms of the world. And he has the prerogative, the power, the ability, the authority to give them to whoever he wishes. I think that's a very important point in the whole issue for us to understand as we are Christians living life in two kingdoms, how do we deal with government? John chapter 12, verse 31 uh, Jesus says, now the judgment of this world, uh, uh, now there is judgment in this world, now the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. I call Satan the ruler of this world. He, he says the, the, the same thing in John 14, the ruler of this world is coming. John 16, 11, the ruler of this world. Th that's who rules this world. Satan is basically the one who is in charge of this world and the kingdoms of this world, and he has the right by his own testimony to give them to whomever he chooses. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you see this a little bit clearer. So <clears throat> put a mark there in your Bible. Don't lose it. We'll come back. But turn back in the Old Testament. Turn to the book of Daniel. <coughs> Excuse me. Go to <coughs> Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10 is a very interesting um, situation here that gives us a little more insight, I think, into this matter of <clears throat> Satan's dominion over the world's kingdoms. Daniel 10, verse 10. Daniel 10, verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you. And stand up, uh, stand upright, for I have been now, I've now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Verse 12, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So if you go back to the next the chapter previous, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 9, the first 23 verses or so of Daniel chapter 9, uh, uh, Daniel has come and he's prayed to God <coughs> on behalf of his people, <coughs> and he prays for a response from God, uh, and, and then God dispatches a <coughs> messenger from heaven <coughs> uh, with an answer to, to Daniel. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, and then behold, Michael, the one of the chief priests, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Right? So an angel has been sent from God to bring a response to Daniel. That angel stopped. He can't get there. Uh, the process has been uh, stopped, halted uh, by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So apparently some kind of demonic angel, some kind of demonic ruler or sub-ruler who works for Satan in the kingdom of Persia. He has a, sp a special role and <clears throat> function evidently in this area. And he stepped in and 
stop the angelic being from uh, God to be to come in to deliver the answer until Michael intercedes, right? Behold, Michael, one of the chief priests, came and helped me. So what you learn from that is at least there's a, there's a conflict, an angelic battle going on in the heavenly. There's a conflict between angelic beings in the, in, in the heavenly realms. And, and then there's also certain demons that identify themselves with certain nations. And again, that's by Satan's de design. Uh, uh, because he's the ruler of this world, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Turn back to uh, uh, um, Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, there is a... judgment that is coming against the, the Babylon's king. Isaiah 14, verse 11. Isaiah 14, 11. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Well, you know, whatever that means, I'm pretty sure you don't want to hear that from God, right? <laughs> that means there's judgment coming against Babylon's ruler, and it means basically that he's going to die and he's going to be eaten by worms. Then there's an immediate transition, an immediate uh, 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 transition, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Now, if you have the authorized version, it says, O how you've fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. You said, verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and they will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble and, uh, and who shook the kingdoms? Right? Th that's Satan. Oh, how you've fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Right? So there you have an earthly ruler, but then you have someone who's behind that earthly ruler, and it's Satan who's behind the king of Babylon. And in essence, saying again, there are satanic forces that are associated with worldly governments, worldly kingdoms. Go to Ezekiel. <clears throat> you see the same thing. Ezekiel chapter 28. see the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 28. First 10 verses of the, of the chapter speaks of the leader of Tyre, the ruler or the prince. Again, he's talking about a human leader over, over Tyre. But behind that human leader, there's someone much stronger, a greater force. And the verses 11 through 19 speak to this superhuman, this supernatural leader behind him. And again, it's Satan. And here in the context, he's known as the king of Tyre. Look at Ezekiel 28 verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was uh, your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, gold and the workmanship of your settings and sockets. Gold was... Uh, the workmanship of your settings and your sockets was in you, and on the day that you were created, you were prepared. 
Can you were the anointed cherub. Verse 14, who's he talking to? He's talking to the king of Tyre, right? You were in Eden. Verse 14 again, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the mix of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day in which you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground and put you before kings that they may see you. Right? So he's speaking, again, to none other than Satan. He is the, he is the king. Satan is the king of Tyre. Uh, again, just like Lucifer is identified as the king of Babylon. So I, I think it, we just have to realize that Satan has a tremendous power over this world. Satan has a tremendous power over this world. He has a tremendous power and influence over men and over human government. Now, again, while God has ordained government, nevertheless, these, uh, the world and the world systems of government have been infiltrated and influenced by sa Satan and his uh, demonic activities. So I think it's safe to say that in some sense, all governments around the world themselves are under some kind of satanic control. God ordained government for the best of man, for man's best interest, for the preservation of man, to promote good and put down evil. But of course, the paradox in a fallen world is everything about man is evil. Because men, is e men are evil, right? His rule is evil. And then satanic activity behind the scenes, if you will, that's going on, pressures man even to more and more ungodliness and more and more unrighteousness. And Satan, by his activity, incites sin in the flesh in fallen human beings. So while government is ordained by God, that doesn't mean that everything government does necessarily reflects the will of God. Because, again, man has unlimited potential for evil. What was the, what was the, uh, uh, the, the assessment of mankind back in Genesis chapter 6 at the time of the flood? Right? Basically, God said man's w wickedness is limitless. It's limitless. So much so, uh, wickedness is so great among men that God determined that he was going to drown the entire world with a flood. And as I said last time, I think it was, uh, after the flood when Noah and his family, they emerged from the ark. It's a new beginning, a new world, but man still has what? Sinfulness, right? And, and as men began to repopulate the earth, that's when the Lord established capital punishment. And really, Genesis chapter 9 is the first... Uh, uh, major emphasis in the world on human government because of mankind's sinful activity. Mankind's sinful activity could not be controlled just within the family, so God instituted government with the authority to take the life of the one who takes the life of the other. Of the other. So all that to say is government is not going to be the answer to the problem. Politics, politicians are not the answer to the problem. They're not the solution to man's problems. Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ alone is. And it's only the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel that changes man's heart because men are sinful and evil to the very core of their being. Therefore, often what you see in government is that it's a government by fallen men, of fallen men, satanically influenced. It's anything but holy and righteous. And I think we just all need to be aware of that and admit that's the reality in a fallen world. And realize that while Satan is the little g-god of this world, there is one who is the ultimate sovereign, amen? There's one who rules over him. God is sovereign, not Satan. God is sovereign, not Satan. God is sovereign over the affairs of men, both good men and bad men, both good governments and bad governments. 
He's the one that raises up and takes down governments. He's the one that sets the times and the boundaries of the nations. He's the one that takes down and rises up rulers. And he works all things out for his glory and for our good, even working through sinful fallen human leaders and sinful fallen human governments. And when we're submissive to government, when we have the right heart attitude towards authority, we're acknowledging that sovereignty. We're acknowledging God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. We're acknowledging that God himself is the ultimate authority. So our submission to human authority is really submission based on our understanding and ascension to the fact that God is sovereign over all. And God, who's sovereign over all, will hold evil men and wicked rulers accountable. All right? Now, back to Romans 13. And there's a lot here in this uh, text, as you could imagine. So I think probably the first thing we should do when we come to this text is just try to get an understanding of the verses that are before us, and then we'll try to work through at some point pulling out principles and applying the principles. And then, not tonight, probably, not going to happen tonight, but maybe next time, we'll look at the issue of taxation from the Bible and realize that taxes are nothing new. It really is an Old Testament concept. We'll look and see how, how they came to be, Lord willing. And then we'll probably need to look a little bit at the issue at some point of the issue of the tithe and try to understand the tithe because I don't think it's understood as well as it should be. So there's a lot of, again, a lot of information to, to cover. Now, just like we're called to have a proper attitude towards authority, we need to have a proper attitude concerning the issue of taxation. Because when you talk about taxation, you're really talking about the issue of money. And just like our attitudes towards those in authority over us, whether they, good, they be good or bad, those rulers over us, that's really not the issue. Same thing with taxation. The issue is really not whether or not government is using our money in a manner that we agree with or not. The underlying issue, again, is, is our heart attitude. Realizing, here you go, realizing that our money is actually not our money. It's not our money, right? It, it belongs to God. It's just loaned to us. We're just stewards of what belongs to him. Our money is not our money. It's God's. And it's interesting here that the command for us to pay our taxes, there really is no qualifying statement in the text. There's nothing in the text that says pay your taxes if if you agree with how the government is spending your money. It doesn't say that. It just simply says pay your taxes. It doesn't say on the contrary. It doesn't say do not pay your taxes if that old wicked Nero is in charge of the government. It doesn't say that. It just says pay your taxes. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So in these first seven verses of the top of Romans chapter 13, there are two imperatives, two commands. Subject yourself to the governing authority and pay your taxes. You submit yourself to the governing authority, you pay your taxes, then you trust God. That's what it's saying. So first off, what do verses 6 and 7 say? What do they mean? Again, verse 6 says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Because of this, you pay taxes. So because of this obviously refers to what he's been talking about in the verses previous uh, uh, to verse 6, right? The first five verses of the chapter. 
Again, God has commanded us to be uh, subject to governing authorities. And the reason is that no authority exists except it comes from God. And therefore, part of our submission and subjection to authority has to do, in this realm, it has to do with paying our taxes. It's part of our obligation. Now, the word pay is teleo, means just to bring to a close, to finish, to an end, complete something. Uh, the implication here basically is pay off your taxes in full. The word taxes is the word pharos. It just means the annual tax levied upon houses, lands, and persons. So personal in, in, uh, a personal tax that one must pay but with uh, income tax, personal tax, property tax, uh, uh, it's kind of all combined. So because of this, because God has commanded us to be in subjection to the government, because God has ordained all authority, because there's no authority except that comes from him, we are to pay our taxes in full. So again, the Christian in the world, right? He lived life in two worlds. The Christian in the world of Ming has two responsibilities to authority, to government over us, submit to government, and pay your taxes. Here's the reason why. For because of this you pay taxes for, here it is, rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. We are to pay our taxes because those who collect them are servants of God. They're his ministers. So that takes us back up to verse 4, where there's the same kind of idea found that government is a minister of God for our good. A minister of God bearing the sword, an avenger bringing wrath upon those who practice evil. Only back up in verse 4, the word was diakonos. We get our English word deacons from that word. For rulers are servants. So here's a different word here in verse uh, 6. Uh, liturgos is the, is the word. We get our English word liturgy. It's a word we use when we speak of religious activities, religious service to God. And the word liturgos is used uh, other places in the New Testament. You see it, for example, in Hebrews chapter 1-7 of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, his ministers. There it is, the flame of fire, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? Same word, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So God's angels are his ministers performing religious acts of service back unto him. So in the same sense, those who are in public office, public officials, those who serve in government positions, they are in essence doing the same thing. They're performing acts of service to God because government is ordained by God. So when we support government, when we pay our taxes, we too are in essence serving God because God has ordained government for the promotion of good, the protection, the preservation of life, the welfare of people, preservation of God-given inalienable rights. God has, again, ordained government. God's ordained government to restrict evil, promote the good. So because of this, you are, because God has ordained government, you're to pay your taxes in full. For again, the rulers, the authorities, the government authorities, the government officials, they're servants of God. They're ministers of God. They serve him. And when, listen to this, when you pay your taxes, in essence, it is an act of worship on your part to God. Now, don't raise your hand, but I'll bet you if I asked, nobody in the room ever thought about that before, right? I mean, paying my taxes is really an act of worship. Yeah. In a manner, that's what he's saying. Right? You're, paying, you're, 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 you're in essence worshiping God by paying your taxes. Now, I'm not talking here about what government does with their money. Right? I'm not talking about whether it's a good government, bad government, whatever. 
We're not making judgments on those things, whether or not we agree with how they use the money from, that we, they garner from our taxes. That's not the point. The point here is God has ordained government, and those who serve government, in government, they are his ministers, and they actually serve him. And we are to support them in their service because we are rendering our submission back to God. We're rendering uh, our finances back to God through the, the form of taxes. Because of this, you pay taxes also, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So again, they're devoting themselves to God's service. So again, not only is that word liturgists, uh, servants of God, used of angels, it's also used of uh, priests. You see it in the Septuagint, the Greek uh, uh, translation of the Old Testament. Priests are those, again, who are ministers in the sanctuary, ministers for God in the sanctuary. And, and again, in the New Testament, again, uh, the word is used to describe priestly service to God, priestly service to man. Uh, so again, in the present context, Paul is just basically saying, in essence, he's describing government officials in this role of performing a religious service to God because men are, are rulers, are servants before God, servants of God. So again, paying our taxes is not only a duty, uh, but uh, uh, and, and not only is not paying our taxes a crime, in light of the context, not to pay your taxes as a believer in, in this world is really to sin against God. It's a sin against God because it, has, it undermines his ordained institution of government. Because taxes are the means of carrying on the responsibility of government. And because we submit ourselves to uh, the governing authorities, not only that, uh, not only because if we refuse to refuse, we're going to be punished. Uh, according to verse 5 here, again, it's the right thing to do for the sake of our conscience. And because of this, God ordained government, we pay our taxes. Again, paying our taxes is the right thing to do, again, for the sake of our conscience. Uh, because rulers are God's servants. They devote themselves to, the very, to that very thing. That's the God-ordained position that they hold. They devote themselves to carry out God's ordained activity for the promotion of good, the restriction of evil. Now, worldly men non-Christian, they pay their taxes, what? Uh, 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 begrudgingly. They pay them somewhat out of fear of penalty of the law, somewhat of realizing that uh, uh, as mismanaged as government might be, it does promote the law and order in the country most of the time, or at least it used to in the olden days. But the Christian, when he comes to pay his taxes, he has a much higher uh, responsibility, a much higher view of authority. He pays his taxes because he realizes God has ordained government. He pays his taxes and he knows it's the right thing to do because God has commanded him and failing to do so would violate his conscience and negatively affect his relationship with God. He pays his taxes out of a right heart attitude because again we're dealing with the issue of heart attitude. Money's not ours. It belongs to God. God's ordained government. Again, taxes are nothing new. I'll talk about that in the future. But the point is, if we pay our taxes like the world pays their taxes, however bad government may be and mismanaged and all that kind of stuff, if our heart attitude as believers living life in two kingdoms, if our heart attitude is no different than the unsaved man around us, if we constantly complain about the government, if we constantly complain about the leaders of our government, then how are we any different from the world around us that's unsaved? If we just talk about government and human rulers the way that the unbelieving world does, 
how will we be seen as light in a place of darkness? How will our complaining and about government and authorities over us give us opportunities to speak of the glories of Christ and the wonder of salvation? How will our dishonoring and complaining against government, government authorities promote the gospel of Christ? How will our picketing and protesting and our rebellion advance the gospel? Those are questions we've got to ask. Because the Bible says for the Christian, everything we do, even paying our taxes, is all for the Lord's sake. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Everything. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we get involved in, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, everything we do really should be for the Lord's sake. Because the reason that the Lord has left us in the world as believers, among citizens of the kingdom of men, the reason that we're here is because we're only ones in the kingdom of men who know the way to eternal life. We're the only ones who know the truth. So in essence, when we as Christians pay our taxes, we're not paying to the government. In essence, we're paying them to God. We're just being obedient to God. And the way we treat government officials, government authority, is a direct testimony to our relationship with Christ. And each one of us is either going to give a good testimony or we're going to give a, a bad testimony. For how we relate to government, and again, how much we complain about it, it's going to have a direct effect on us being truth tellers. Did, did I say a little while ago that in a realm of coming darkness, the church just needs to be the church? Why have we been left here? And for government to work properly, those who serve, again, must recognize their authority comes from God. They must understand that government serves and promotes divine purposes. And, and uh, every principle of justice, every principle of social order has to be found out of, the, uh, of the, the word of God from the person of God himself. But when God is no longer recognized as the ultimate authority in the world, in the government, when government no longer sees itself as carrying out the divine purposes that God has ordained it to carry out, when the foundation of what is right and wrong is removed, when men's opinions are left to be the ultimate standard, when, God, when government no longer works as God has ordained it to work and function, as soon as God is removed, I told you there's problems, as soon as the principles of governments are removed from God and God is no longer seen as the ultimate authority, the ultimate source, the standard of what is right and wrong, justice weakens. Crime's no longer seen as crime, it's just seen as antisocial behavior. And everybody starts to fight for the rights of the criminal. And miscarriages of justice increase everywhere, crime increases. And when we take God again out of our view and out of the, our minds, when, it, when we abandon the biblical foundations of government, the foundation is left to weaken, it's going to crumble. Boy, does that sound like anything you've seen anywhere around us in the last few years? But even when that happens, even when government abandons God, when it abandons its, its biblical foundation and biblical purposes, the biblical truth remains. <clears throat> government authorities, rulers, are, are servants of God. And the divine mandate for the Christian remains the same. Be in subjection to governing authorities and pay your taxes. It doesn't change. Verse 7 says, render to all what is due them, 
<clears throat> tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, render has the idea of giving something back uh, that you owe. So listen, we owe our taxes. Taxes are not voluntarily. Taxes are not optional giving we gift to the government. We're not giving government a gift. We owe them. When we pay our taxes, we're giving to them what is due them. We're paying a debt so that they may carry out their God-ordained role. Therefore, as Christians, we have a moral and a spiritual responsibility to pay what God requires. Render to all that is due them, tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom. So again, taxes come in all <coughs> kinds of forms. There's income tax, property tax, <coughs> customs or toll taxes, uh, uh, paid on goods. And again, when you owe a tax, you just pay it. Render to all whom is due them, or all what is due them, tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear, he says to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now the word fear can mean anything from respect to sheer terror, depending on how it's used in a context. The word honor has... Uh, uh, it's sometimes used for money, but it's probably better understood to describe worth, value. So I think in the context, we'd probably understand the word here to be esteem, value, that which is precious. Render to all that is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Simply, he's saying here that we just need to respect and honor those in authority. Not because of who they are not because of the power and the influence they possess, but because they have been appointed by God to fulfill a God-ordained position, uh, a role in, uh, of authority. We, we may not like the ruler. I'm not begging that point. We might even despise the ruler. We might even deplore the, uh, the politics of a particular person in office. We might be repulsed by that person's personal conduct. But that doesn't disallow us the biblical responsibility of respecting the office that that person holds because that person holds an office that has been ordained by God for that person to hold and all authority comes from God, not man. Again, there are men and women who are in positions of authority. They're just fulfilling uh, their role. Whether or not they realize it, a completely different issue. That ordained role is of God's servant and they are charged with carrying out the divine mandate for the good of people for the restraint of evil in a fallen world, therefore they must be respected as God's ministers. For because of this you pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all that is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And let me just very quickly remind you of the time when this was written, this text was written, when Paul wrote this letter, Nero is the emperor of Rome. He is an especially vile, wicked man. He murdered his mother after having an incestuous relationship with her. He is credited to having married two other men in homosexual marriages. He's believed to have murdered a number of other people who got in his way, along with having many adulterous relationships and affairs. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote this about Nero. He said he polluted himself by every lawful and lawless indulgence and had not omitted a singular abomination which could be heightened or which could heighten his depravity. Nice guy, huh? Along with all of this, he claimed to be God. He wanted to be worshipped as God by men. 
I've told you he's also a persecutor of the Christian church. He sowed some into the skins of wild beasts and had them, uh, had them uh, uh, attacked by dogs until they died. He dressed some in shirts made of stiff wax, fitting them for stakes, and then sitting on fire to light his gardens. And Paul's going to lose his life. He's going to lose his head under Nero's rule. Nevertheless, Paul says, pay your taxes. Because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all that is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, Lord willing, if we get this far next week, we're going to look a little bit out of the book of Matthew, and we're going to look at Jesus' response to paying taxes to an apostate religious system, an apostate government, when he's challenged by the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're trying to trap him into saying that basically Christians should not pay taxes. Christians should not support pagan apostate governments. And that's a great story that I think rebuffs in part kind of a modern movement. I think maybe it's not modern, but at least here in the modern world, uh, found among some Christians that say it's unbibiblical for you to pay taxes to a government that promotes and supports such evil as our government does across the board, including abortion. But Christ paid taxes. He paid taxes to an apostate religious system. He paid taxes to an apostate Roman government, and he encouraged everyone else to do the same. Because government, no matter how bad it is, is better than no government at all. Pay your taxes, respect your leaders, give them the honor that's due them, and then remember that God is sovereign over the affairs of man. Again, remember the purpose for the church. Why is the church in the world? To do what is right. Uh, to do what is right in front of a watching world. And when you do what is right and you do what is honorable and noble, that may give you an opportunity uh, to stand out from the crowd and then to declare the glories uh, of Christ and point people to the hope of the gospel found in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, Lord willing, next week, we're going to jump in to look at the issue of taxes, how they've been ordained by God. And even before taxes, there's a certain plan and pattern of giving in the Bible. Uh, it goes back uh, even before Moses. Categories of free will giving and required giving. And again, I think what part of the, part of the issue here, when we don't understand the whole issue of taxes and money and stuff, is... We think that 10% is required of us to give back to God. I think we're going to see when you go to the Old Testament, uh, it's probably, taxation was probably more between 23 and 25% of a person's total income. Then we get this 10% idea as the tithe of the Old Testament. Well, again, that's not all there was. There's these other things that kind of jack up the, the price a little bit. But there's nothing in the New Testament that talks about the tithe whatsoever. Church doesn't have any responsibility biblically to tithe. So what does God want from us? Does he want 10%? No, he doesn't want 10%. You know what God wants from each and every one of us? He wants all of us. He wants all of us. Everything. Everything we own, everything we think, everything that belongs to us belongs to him. He wants us to serve him and represent him well in a fallen world that, again, is ruled by fallen men under satanic oppression. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he wants us to have a hard attitude that gives us an opportunity to be light in a dark world that we might share the hope we have in the person of Jesus Christ. I was counting the other day. I, I can't remember the exact number. 
Some of you who are as old as I am, you can stop and count too. I, I think I've lived under 12 presidents. Guess what? They've all come and gone. Right? John Kennedy was the president when I was born. They just come and go. That's what her human rulers do. They just come and go. But the Lord Jesus Christ stays forever. His kingdom reigns forever. Amen? We're here in this life for a short period of time. We need to have proper heart attitudes. We need to understand why we're in this world. We need to understand that human government is going to come and go. Human rulers are going to come and go. But the gospel remains the same. And we have an opportunity to be light in a dark world if we have proper heart attitudes towards government, proper heart attitudes towards um, taxes, money, all this kind of stuff. I do think we need to know the limitations biblically of government so that we can, at the point that we need to say, you do not have authority in the realm of the church. Because, again, I think that battle is coming, and as I've already said numerous times, I think it's going to come back ferociously. And, again, with all due respect, we're just not going to comply. Right? We, we, we have to do what God calls us to do in, in his kingdom. And that's the tension. And we accept, the, accept whatever the human authority brings. But, again, we remind them that they are also under authority. Let every soul be subject to authority goes even for the human ruler. All right, Father God, we're so thankful for <clears throat> this day of worship, thankful for an opportunity we've had this morning and this evening to open up your word and to be encouraged by it and challenged by it, and we thank you for it. Thank you for the person of Jesus Christ who gives us uh, the hope that we desperately need, who's the answer to all of our problems, all the world's problems, and just help us to be faithful. Help us to be good ambassadors for Christ in a fallen world, in a wicked system, to give hope to those who seek that hope through Christ. Thanks for this dear, these dear people, and we just praise you for our day of worship, and pray your blessing on our week upcoming. In Christ's name, amen.